0: Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. I'm Myla Kim.
1: And I'm Ed Gilbreth. In every episode, you'll hear from authors of color about the making of their books, as well as the challenges they had to overcome along the way.
0: Listeners, we are so excited to bring you today's episode. And you may remember from last season, we talked with some of the authors who are part of the Enneagram Daily Reflections. And so, if you enjoyed that episode, you'll definitely want to tune into this one. And here's what I love most about the conversations with our authors when it comes to the Enneagram: like, most of the content that currently exists out there about the Enneagram is dominated by white culture. And so the authors of color that have contributed to this series, they're bringing to the table a whole new angle to the enneagram that I rarely read about or hear about, but is so necessary. And so they talk about their ethnic identity and culture and how that is an added layer to how we understand typology and how we think about the different nine Enneagram types and also just common misconceptions and mistypes that happen when we don't take culture into consideration. And so there's so much we could talk about. I really could go on and on and on about how great these conversations were. Um, But why don't I just leave it here and let you listen to this episode featuring some of the authors of color of the Enneagram Daily Reflections. And so enjoy. We are excited today to welcome Sandra Van Opstel to the Every Voice Now podcast. So welcome, Sandra.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be with
0: you guys. So we always acknowledge the ethnic identities of our guests on the podcast. And so would you tell us a little bit about your ethnic background and also along with that, any of the key moments of you processing or understanding better your ethnic identity?
2: Oh, yes. Well, are you guys going to pay for my therapy after this?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you need, um, we'll give it to you. <laughs> uh, no,
2: I'm the daughter of two immigrants that came from Latin America in the, in the mid-60s. That's I always start with that because it's the most important part of who I am. I mean, I am who I am because of the people that raised me and the community that formed me and the ancestors that invested so that our generation could have and be what we are today. My mother's from Colombia. My father's from Argentina which is where I get my incredible Latino last name, Van Opstel. And so my father is um, of Dutch and German heritage for five generations, I think, in Argentina. And maybe more like late 1800s, I think it was. And my mother is Colombian. And so I I was deeply shaped by those two particular ethnic heritages. Um, And, you know, obviously... Um, psychologists and sociologists and anthropologists talked about how important uh, the culture of the mother is and shaping kind of the identity and values within the home culture um, of, of, of a child and of a person as they're growing up. So I would say that I'm probably more ethnically Colombian and you all can't see me, but um, I'm a white Latina, meaning that I have European heritage that kind of dominates the way I am perceived in, in society. I live in a city that's predominantly Mexican and in a neighborhood that's predominantly Puerto Rican and Caribbean. Um, and I pastor at a church that's predominantly Puerto Rican and Caribbean. Um, so I think part of my ethnic story and heritage has been to understand myself in my own distinct kind of national and ethnic identities, as well as a collective identity as a Latina in the work that I do in the church and in the community. And so That's that's how I would describe my ethnic identity. You know, I think the first the first memory I have of understanding myself as a Latina is the very traumatic memory that I have of having moved from the city to the suburbs. So I was living in the northwest north side of Chicago in a community that remains hundreds, uh, you know, 100 plus um, ethnicities in Rogers Park, West Rogers Park. Not a lot of white people around, you know. Um, all kinds of languages, and I moved to a suburb in the northwest of Chicago that was almost exclusively white, um, and now is actually predominantly Asian, American, East Asian, South Asian, definitely still not a lot of Latinos up in that space, and so that move like sharply identified me for two reasons. One, I didn't speak any English when I moved. I was in- entering into the first grade, and I didn't have any handle of the English language, and... Two, because there were no other languages spoken around me at the time. And so being from a different community and um, in a family that spans kind of what we racially look like, you know, um, it was clear that I was an outsider. um, And that, I think, pretty much marked my understanding of otherness as bad and as a deficiency. And so I spent, you know, the next... I don't know, a decade and a half trying to fit in and be like everyone else. And the rest is history and you can find it on my (laughs) (laughs)
1: books.
0: Great plug. I mean, as we are recording this, it is the beginning of National Hispanic Heritage Month, which is incredible and timely. And so how are you celebrating as you've just talked about? Not wanting to identify with your ethnic identity and wanting to do away with it. And then I'm sure years later, we've read your books. Here you are now. <laughs> like, how are you celebrating this Yes, life? I'm the
2: poster child for Latinas.
0: <laughs> I I mean, honestly, what a
2: weird month. Let me tell you what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Can I be honest I with you guys? Yeah. Because, you know, that's the landmark of the eight. So I'm, I'm, I feel defeated a little bit as I enter into this month. I just wrote a text to a friend of mine who's an author and Christian preacher and speaker and Man of color and I said, you know, I've just seen four different fall conferences, events, where, you know, we're talking about the future of the church and forward thinking and all this kind of stuff. And there's there are no women of color on the platform at all, and there are definitely no Latinas or Latinos on the platform. And I feel like what kind of numbers do we have to get to before you'll take us seriously? So I think Latino Latinx Heritage or Hispanic Heritage or Latino Heritage Month, I think it's a weird month because it's almost like we are we are celebrated on your plates but we're invisible in your in your minds and in your thoughts about where this world is going.
0: Thank thank you for your honesty and your vulnerability. I think a lot of our listeners would probably resonate with what you're feeling. And so kind of what I heard in that too is rooting for the people on the margins and helping them to be seen. And there is a number on the Enneagram who is notoriously known for being the one for justice and fighting for the underdogs, which is the Enneagram 8. And so we have you on the podcast um, because you are the author of 40 Days on Being an 8, part of our series of the Enneagram Daily Reflections. And so we're excited about it. It's coming out in October. And I'd love to know... How did you first encounter the Enneagram and how has that impact just the discovery you've had with who you are and your life, all of that?
2: Well, I encountered the Enneagram through a spiritual director. And so that is a very important note to make, y'all, if you're listening. <laughs> I did not encounter the Enneagram through some kind of graphic online, which I appreciate a, a side conversation in a green room somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I encountered it through pain, actually, uh, through a process I was going through in my own leadership that required that a new tool be given to me that I didn't have, um, and so it was through a spiritual director, and I would like to name her Marilyn Stewart. Okay, sorry. Um, and she was instrumental for me because she helped me accept who I am as a gift from God and because we're talking about ethnicity and Hispanic Heritage Month because our community has gone so ignored um, and so misunderstood and so caricatured um, as those that you help and those that help you with your lawn or with your garbage or with your food um, I didn't ever see myself as a leader or as a person that had that could occupy that space and so I came from a long line of people that had all kinds of jobs and there was dignity in the work that they did, but because of their jobs, they weren't seen as important or necessary voices. And so I could never see a place for my voice. And when I would raise my voice and when I would find that freedom, I would get slapped on the hand or I would get silenced or muffled or told off, or, you know, I would get scripture thrown at me about my behavior. Um, And so Marilyn Stewart helped me to accept. She helped me to accept who I am. And to see that distinctive as a gift from God. And she helped me to name how that distinctive in this Latina female prophet's body was going to be a problem for the spaces that I was in. And how to manage myself in those spaces so that I could make choices that I felt comfortable with and that were effective in the call that God had given me. So it was not fun for me. I know a lot of y'all have come to the Enneagram through something like through a joyful. It wasn't fun for me. It was a ba- painful experience I was having in my vocational space um, that highlighted for me patterns that I had in, in my personal friendships. Um, and... My spiritual director said, honey, it's time. Let's pull out this tool and start doing some work. And she so graciously and so gently and so carefully held a mirror up to my face so that I could see that who I was was good and that who God wanted me to become would be even better.
3: Now, for those who uh, don't know the name Marilyn Stewart, she was an university staff worker. She was a spiritual director for so, so many many people um, who came through the fellowship and then of course others outside the fellowship. She was dearly beloved. So I appreciate you sharing about her and uh, and it's, it's so wonderful to see the ways that you have journeyed through that process of, of seeing yourself in the mirror and embracing, you know, who God has made you to be. And I love how you write about it in the book. You have this wonderful portion in the beginning of your book where you say, I'm an eight, I'm an eight with a strong seven wing. I'm a Latina eight. I'm an intuitive feeler eight. I love this last line. I am an eight with a knack for saying the thing <laughs> that everyone thinks. <laughs> so I would love for you to unpack some of that. You don't have to unpack all of it. But I think especially that that one that communicates the intersection of you being a female Latina eight.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, how is that? particular combination, maybe distinct from the typical white male Mm -hmm. Enneagram 8. Love for you to talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it comes back to my encounter with the Enneagram being with Marilyn. My spiritual director was a white, I mean, she was a white woman from the East Coast. Like, I mean, (laughs) you know, she was that. But she had spent decades and raised her children in Latin America Starting and supporting movements amongst Latin American college students. And so she had so much connection to what it meant to be within a Latina community that she would process that with me as I was processing my own understanding of what it meant to what it meant to be transformed by God for the sake of others in spiritual direction, you know, and so she would, Say to me, for example, when I made my first trip to Argentina, because I had never gone, I had always gone to Colombia every other summer to visit cousins. All my cousins here are from Colombia, my aunts and uncles, really no connection to my Argentine side at all. And when I went for the first time, I was 30. And then the next day I met after all that activity, I met with, with my spiritual director and she said, what did you learn about yourself on your trip to Argentina? And she had actually lived there for, for quite a while. And I turned to her and I said, I learned that I'm white. And I just started bawling, just crying. And it was the first time I began to understand more deeply the intersection of the in-betweenness, the liminal space of being both racially white and the privilege that comes with that and the otherness and the marginality of being a Latino woman in my cultural values and in my theology and all that kind of stuff in the space. In, In a later time, we were talking about you know, leaders that start things and, and everyone, my mentors, my the people that I work with, you should start something, you should start something, you should start something. And she, she broke down for me why in my Latina culture, I was more committed to being loyal to an institution or loyal to a community than branching out on my own and starting something by myself. And what were the parts of my cultural values that were kind of not working against, but that were t- maybe tempering or offsetting The spiritual gifts, the apostolic gifts that I had, the entrepreneurial gifts that I had, the eightness of my of myself, you know. Um, And so she helped me find a way to do that within the work I was doing to start movement within. And I think that that is what I mean by when I say I'm an I'm a Latina, I'm an eight with a seven wing, which means just like wow, so much energy coming into that room. <laughs>
1: <Watch
2: out. laughs> you know, I'm I, I'm all those things. I'm an ENFP on the Myers mm. Briggs. I'm I'm the daughter of a particular, you know, a Colombian woman. I'm I'm all these things. I'm a woo. My my strongest strength on the Strengths Finder is a woo. Y'all, eights <laughs> don't typically have woo the way they're written about in books, right? Um, and so I'm an intuitive feeler. I have like strong gifts of hospitality, like those are things that um, when you read the descriptions of the eights in most books and when you, you hear these podcasts that people come on like, I'm an eight and I started this charity thing and I'm like, you know, I millions of people follow me and look at my stuff. And they're almost always white men who are NTs on the Myers-Briggs and they're incredibly entrepreneurial and they, they have access to wealth. And so they're like, oh, "I started three things. This is what 8s do." And it's like, that's what 8s do when they have money and, and networks. So I think I started I started the book that way to say like we are more than the caricature that especially so much of the enneagram has put forth. I would say that's true for the, from the 1 to the 9. The descriptors of the 1 to the 9 are typically white folks in those in those spaces. And so we have to find like what does it mean that we're Oh my gosh, an eight—that's an Asian female. Like, like, what do you even do with that? You no, know? <laughs> right. um, and and to, to name it as a reality.
3: I love that you are leaning into this idea that that this what you, the way you've written about the eight, and I think this whole series, to be honest, is making all those different numbers so much richer, so much more complex, so much more interesting because we're seeing so many different. Uh, elements of culture woven in from all the different people of color who are part of this particular series. So I'd love to go here a little further because, of course, there's been critique, right, about the Enneagram and about the number of people who tend to write and speak about the Enneagram, which you just named, who tend to be either white male or white. So, so I think there's been some pushback from communities of color, right? The Enneagram has been colonized by white people and is really not a useful tool for those people of color. And I'd love to hear your commentary on that. How would you respond to those critiques out there who from people who believe that the Enneagram is not really a helpful tool for people of color?
2: I think that it is a helpful tool. And... I think that we have to decolonize the way it's come to us in its current modern form. So I think both of those things are true. But if you're a person of color listening to this podcast, you already know that. I mean, that's like everything, psychology textbooks, you know, um, you know, preaching manuals, like anything that we look at, we're going to have to, within the context of a pri- pri- predominantly white institution or setting, we're going to have to decolonize it. Actually, that's that's the very reason I have not been like gotten a certificate or credential in the Enneagram as a spiritual director or as a coach in that area, because I don't want it coming from the States. I just don't want it. So I'm not willing to go to any of the institutes that we have in the US.
0: So much we could unpack there. And so we'll probably pick up and talk more about it in our next segment. But we're going to take a quick break. And then when we return, Sandra is actually going to do a reading for us and then share with us her book writing process. So stay tuned. And thanks for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast.
3: Welcome back to the Every Voice Now podcast. I'm Helen Lee, and it's time for our Behind the Word segment, where we will hear a reading from today's guest, and then we'll find out more about the backstory of what it was like for our author to write those portions. So, Sandra, what will you be reading for us today, and why
2: did you select that particular passage? So I will be reading today from day 15, and the topic is anger. And I selected it because I feel like this is the most prominent experience that people have of an eight. And so I think it will help people understand maybe what's going on on the inside. Day 15, anger is driving. I'm not angry. I'm hurt. I often find myself having to interpret my emotions when I see how my actions are coming across. When I notice people's eyebrows lifting or their bodies leaning backwards, it's clear that some interpretation is needed. It can be as simple as, some Latinas are more demonstrative than other cu- cultures, or a reminder that my passion is not anger. Some days it's a realization that I am indeed communicating anger, when that's not at all what I'm feeling. It's important for me to recognize when my negative emotions are filtered through anger. Anger is the driving emotion when I'm going through something difficult. When my friend stops talking to me and I can't figure out why, anger. When someone I've invested in ghosts me, anger. When I feel like I can't take it anymore and I've had enough, people feel my anger. When I'm beating myself up and feeling guilty for not having done enough, people sense my anger. When I feel exposed in a moment where I'm feeling shame for being too much, I retaliate with anger. It's also important for me to recognize when anger is the appropriate human response for what's happening. Anger is not bad. It's a way we connect as image bearers of God. God gets angry. Jesus, God in the flesh, expressed anger. But we are terrible at processing anger if we've been told it's wrong to be angry. Those of us raised in cultures where it was inappropriate to express anger may feel shut down, which just makes us angrier. We may, even feel, we may even have to uncover layers of repressed feelings later in adulthood if we were formed in a church setting that taught us that anger was ungodly or unbiblical. That's even worse. The discipline of connecting our anger to God's righteous anger requires tools many of us were not given. That has led many of us to feeling we are broken, intense, or ungodly. Anger is an appropriate response to injustice and idolatry. As apes, we carry in us a desire for rightness, not the need to be right ourselves. We long for and dream towards a world in which all things are made whole, as the Lord promises in Revelation 21. This fire for justice burns internally and gets ignited when we're confronted with the wrongness of our world. It's what makes us brave, courageous people who will do and say what is required, and it's also what gets us into trouble.
3: <laughs> that was super super enlightening. I'm thinking about all manner of eights that I know. Um, and I can, I just feel like through listening to you share that, it helps me, helps me understand them better. So thank you for that reading. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to write that particular section. Was it easy? Did it just kind of come out of you because it was it was so apt to describe who you are? Or did it feel at all like a struggle to take us back to the time where you were when you were writing that passage if you can remember.
2: Yeah I'm pretty sure that I was crying during the entire writing of this entire book. The discipline of being vulnerable and authentic and raw in front of other people who may you know as an eight would say you know use these words against you um, later on I think was it felt very heavy to me like I'm, I'm writing this thing and I'm like saying this stuff out loud and and it, it's painful because it reminds me of all the times when I was misunderstood, and all the times where I couldn't say like I feel so re- I feel very rejected by your comment, or I I feel unseen, or I I feel betrayed. I just what came out was just anger, and so underneath all of that were other feelings that I didn't know how to name, and not be penalized for. And so I think when I think about. When I think about most of these chapters, I remember crying through most of them. You know, laughing. Some that's kind of the Enneagram. You laugh a little, you cry a little, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so ashamed of myself. Can I put this in writing? And So for me, the writing of this devotional was very sacred. And I, I believe that not only people who are eights, but people who love eights and who serve alongside of eights and people who have eight wings, I think they should read it because it really describes what's happening on the inside for Um, us, and the inside is very rarely seen.
3: How would you compare the experience of writing this particular book to other writing projects, whether it's The Next Worship or other books you've had a a hand in? I mean, you've talked about the vulnerability that was required in this particular project. So did that make this project that much harder to write? Or was there something about it that felt cathartic to write? Or Just give us a window into how writing this book compared to some of the other writing that you've done.
2: I I just generally, I just generally have a hard time writing. I am an extrovert, so I don't like to sit down and put my thoughts on paper like that. If I could just podcast all my thoughts away, I would do it. And then as a woman of color who rarely hears her voice in those spaces, I, I have so much mental gymnastics to do for myself. Like so much imposter syndrome, so much like, does this even make sense? Does it make sense? And a lot of that I, I, I was able to in therapy and in conversation with friends, you know, identify that had to do with my my change in language as a child. Like, I don't like to feel like I don't make sense because I had such a traumatic experience being made fun of as someone who couldn't communicate in a dominant language that was in my, you know, suburban experience. So I think all those things, they make writing hard for me. I often feel like, oh, somebody could say this better. You know, who am I to like you know, maybe when I grow up and I know something, I'll share something. So in general, writing is like a spiritual discipline that invites spiritual warfare for me. It just does. Everything the enemy wants to tell me, the enemy tells me when I'm writing. Sometimes when I'm preaching, but not, not often. It's like when I'm writing. Who are you to think that you have something to say? You don't even have a certificate and you know you're not certified Enneagram. How dare you write this thing? Like, even though I've been utilizing the tool for, you know, two decades. So um I think that it happens with every book. And I, I know that it's a pattern that happens for many, many of my sisters of color when they write.
3: But I'm so glad you were willing to be courageous and brave enough to share and to process all that internal gymnastics you were doing that's on the page. Yeah. And it's a gift. It's a gift to the church. It's a gift to the eights out there who I hope will read it. And anyone who knows or loves <laughs> so basically everybody. So,
2: or anyone who just loves justice. I mean, if you're just a person that's, yeah. that's out there yeah. trying to do the justice thing, you are going to be around lots of eights. So read it. You
0: know? <laughs> that's what I, I, that's what I love about what you're writing, especially in, in the devotional that you read where anger is actually tied to God's righteousness. And people just think, oh, eights are just angry because they want to be in charge and they want to be in control. But there's like such a prophetic bent to being an eight that I've just, I've never heard named before. And I think as I'm listening to you, Sandra talk about it and I'm, I'm reading your devotional, it's like they have a vision for what could be. And it's this prophetic anger of there's something better than what we have right now. And so I think, Hearing that and having that nuance is so important that eights are not just angry people who want to be the boss of everybody. Like there is a vision for something greater. And so I'm so glad that you can even articulate that. Sandra, I mean, I would love for you to offer a word of advice to our women listeners, women who want to become authors um, and just don't know how to navigate the publishing journey. What do you want them to hear? Write it.
2: That's what I want you to hear. Every single time a woman of color calls me and says, should I write a book? Yes, write it. Every time a woman asks me, should I write? Yes, write it. My answer is write it. And then ask for help. Like I know I and other women of color like myself who kind of accidentally went into publishing. I'm constantly like, I know there's three books that got released this year that were that were published in part. And the per- people's told me in part because I said, I think you have a book to write. Would you like me to connect you with such and such publisher, such and such agent, such and such? Can I see your proposal? Would you like a template for a proposal? I have a template for a proposal. Let me see that. We gathered a group of Latinas, some already authors, some um, going to be authors, um, and we talked about branding. And just as a, as a gift from Chasing Justice to the women, like, let's talk about branding. Let's talk about what you need to look at a contract. So let's talk about, you know, what's a good pay for X, Y, and Z. And so I think finding a cohort, a group, there's tons of them online and then i would say find a community and then i would say pay attention to how your particular personality writes so i always tell people that the editorial is very 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 important i know you want to sell millions of copies someday you probably will Uh, maybe you will this time but if you have to find someone that will help you find your voice um and not change your voice and so i think those are the things i would say
0: Well, before we wrap up, um, why don't you let us know what is ahead for you in regards to writing or Enneagram work or justice work? Like, what is Sandra doing (laughs) in this season? Oh, my gosh. Yes. What am I not
2: doing? I'm an eight. You guys (laughs) know that, right, Eight. So I'm still, you know, we're in our second year of Chasing Justice, which is a a BIPOC-led movement to help guide people towards a lifestyle of faith and justice. So we're still doing that. And you can follow us on ChasingJustice.com or on Instagram. Um, at Chasing Justice underscore. I, I do have a couple books in me I want to write, and so I'm trying to get those proposals out. One of them will be on kind of spiritual formation. The other one is kind of my treatise on Chasing Justice, you know, like the theological, biblical foundations and kind of lifestyle of justice. How do you do that? Um, it will probably be a lot of stories of people that I know and the things they're doing. And I'm always working on collab projects. You know, I got a couple academic articles coming out. i you know, things that are coming out. So it's going to continue to be like projects that help people to imagine a new kind of world. And that starts with admitting where we're at. Just like, this is really that bad. Like we are really in a, yeah, we're, I'm scared. You know, like, I, I, like appropriately scared. I'm like, we should be paying attention with our antennas here about what we're producing for the next generation in the church. And so I think starting there, is like admitting, yeah, we're, we're really failing in some areas. And then what could it look like to build something just a different way?
3: Sandra, it's been such a joy and a delight to have you on this supersized Enneagram episode. Thank you so much for being with us and to our listeners. Stay tuned because up next we have Juanita Rasmus, author of 40 Days on Being a One.
1: Myla, it is incredible to me that IVP is about to turn 75 years old. Do you believe that? That's amazing!
0: I know. That is amazing. I mean, considering that so many book publishers have come and gone during that time, and so I'm so grateful to be part of such a long-standing legacy.
1: Well, it's a testimony to IVP's commitment to publishing quality books, not to mention books by a diversity of authors. And this has been IVP's M.O. for the majority of its history.
0: Yeah, and we keep finding more voices of color to highlight each and every season. And so visit everyvoicenow.com to find out how you can get a great discount on today's featured book and many more.
3: Welcome back to the Every Voice Now podcast. I'm Helen Lee, and next you'll hear from Juanita Rasmus in a conversation she recorded last fall with Ed and Mila about her experiences with the Enneagram and why there aren't many people of color, aside from those in this series, who write about the Enneagram. Take a listen.
1: We're here with Juanita Rasmus, the author of 40 Days of Being a One. And I'd like to ask you, Juanita, how did you find out about the Enneagram and how long did it take for you to discern that you were a one?
4: <laughs> um, I found out about the Enneagram because I took a workshop at the C.G. Jung Center here in Houston. Uh, Carl Jung was a Swiss psychologist and psychiatrist and uh, in his study, he looked at religion, and he looked at the religion and psychotherapy, and how they could work together. And so, the Jung Center presented a Enneagram workshop, and I attended. And I felt like I was being read. You're the Enneagram one. Um, and then later on, I also found out once I got interested in the Enneagram, got did some more work at the Cynical Retreat Center here in Houston, also.
0: You know, one thing that's so unique about this series of book um, is that many of them are authored by people of color. Um, But then why do you think that most voices writing on the Enneagram currently are not people of color? Like, do you think that's changing?
4: Well, first of all, it's changing. But let me tell you why there aren't more authors of people of color. All right. Yeah. Okay, Uh, you know, I said that many of the retreats and workshops that I attend, because I'm a pastor. I have a flexible schedule. I don't have to pay for somebody to take care of my children while I go. First of all, my children are adults now. but all of all of those kinds of things can affect a person's accessibility to information. And so because my uh, congregation invests mm-hmm. in me, they give me a budget to go to workshops and conferences and buy books so that I can then absorb the information and come back and mm-hmm. pour it out. And so the reality is the average individual doesn't have that flexibility and capital of time. And they don't have that capital of Hmm. money to pay for workshops. And uh, prior to COVID, having to get a plane, go somewhere, pay for a hotel room. You're talking about money that would be in a family's budget Hmm. for housing and and food. And and access makes all the difference as to who tells the message.
1: Juanita, what are the unique aspects of understanding the enneagram as a person of color, and, and specifically as a one who is a person of color? I
4: think one of the things that we have to do is, first of all, don't try to make ourselves into little um, uh, ice cube trays. You know, where you put put Juanita in a, in a square and you freeze her, and she's <laughs> going to be a perfect one. Okay, uh, I think what you have to do is to see the enneagram as a tool for engaging and having an awareness about personality patterns. Patterns can be changed, especially for me, the Enneagram helped me to see how I had depended on rules righteousness Hmm. and how that cultivated in me a spirit of judgment Hmm. towards other people. And it helped me to become sensitive to how I might offend the Mm -hmm. other. How I was limiting the flow of God's love through me because of judging somebody. It helped me to see my shadow side, the side of me that I don't want anybody else to see and that I didn't see. But when the Enneagram helped to name it, I believe anything that you name, then you can heal. Mm -hmm. So in naming it, it empowered me to heal it. Now, the illustrations that I might use may be a little different than the ones that somebody else may use. Because again, our cultural background bears witness to how we share our story, how Mm -hmm. we share our information. Um, And so for me, um, those are kind of the the insights that the the anagram number one, is not trying to box people in, is simply trying to say, hey, take a look at some areas of your life that, if they're not nuanced, if they're not matured, if they're not um, massaged, if you will, can, can be downfalls to your relationships. They can, um, they can hinder your being your most expansive self, your most transformed self.
1: Well, thank you so much, Juanita. We are glad that you are a part of our Enneagram Daily Reflection Series.
4: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We'll be right back
3: with the multi-talented Morgan Harper Nichols.
0: We are excited to welcome Morgan Harper Nichols to the Every Voice Now podcast. And so welcome, Morgan.
5: Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah, we're so excited for this conversation and to finally have you on this podcast. And so I wanted to start um, this episode off by asking you to answer the question, who are you and what do you do?
5: I am an artist, visual artist, musician, and a writer. I write lots of poetry, prose, and devotionals as well.
0: Yeah, if you haven't seen Morgan's work, it's beautiful. Go to her website. You will find yourself stuck on her website for longer than (laughs) you anticipated. (laughs) That was my first experience of, oh my God, it's been an hour and I'm still scrolling through her work. It's like this
3: oasis on the internet. It's so wonderful to find these places and spaces and people who create them in the way you do, Morgan.
5: Well, thank you. That means so much because, I mean, that's honestly like, That really, and I mean this sincerely, that's my prayer for what I do. I mean, you never know what someone's going through when they're on Instagram and they're just scrolling through. So if this can just be one moment that reminds you to take a deep breath, that's that's my hope. So thank you. (laughs) Thanks for saying that.
0: Well, Morgan, we always um, talk about ethnic identities with our guests on this podcast, and so would you be able to share with us a little bit about your ethnic background, as well as that, any key moments in your journey of understanding your ethnic identity?
5: I'm I'm Black, African-American, and everything I know is that I've come from descendants of slaves, African slaves in America. So yeah, I'm, and that's both on mom's side and dad's side. So that's who I am. And, and I actually at a, at a young age, I, I grew up in just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, which if you know anything about Atlanta, Georgia, that's a very, actually very rich place for a lot of history, but there's you know, a, lot, a lot of uh, Black history as well there. So I'll just sort of give you a, a pivotal image that I had when I was six years old. My dad was the first Black man to preach on top of Stone Mountain, which um, for an Easter sunrise service. And the significance of that mountain is one, you can hear Martin Luther King talking about that and talking about Stone Mountain, the top of Stone Mountain in his I Have a Dream speech. And a part of the reason why that was significant is because Stone Mountain Park, where I mean, I literally grew up five minutes away from this park, was actually where the uh, Ku Klux Klan had a rebirth uh, at the turn of the century in the 1900s. So so yeah, it was like not where, they, not where the Klan started, but where they decided, oh, we're going to crank things back up again. You know, that's <laughs> in the 1900s. I was very aware of what history looked like for someone that looked like me in, in America at a young age. And then, you know, all the way to the present moment, I have very clear memories of being nine years old. And we were at this like kind of private school co-op thing. And I brought my lunch that day. And it was it was like Black people style wings. And there was all white kids. And they were like, that smells weird. What is up with your food? Like that looks disgusting. Like, and I was like, whoa, so it's not just the color of my skin. It's my food too. Like it's, <laughs> I'm just trying to eat my lunch in peace. So yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you know, I was pretty young when that happened, right? I became aware of it could be anything that makes someone say, Oh, you're other you're different. It could be it could be your hair texture, it could be your skin, it could be the food you eat, it could be the way you say a certain word. And yeah, I just became very, very aware of that at a young age. And and they didn't always know what to do with it. You know, it was just like, is this how everyone is? Or was that just like an isolated experience? I mean, I think a huge difference for me was that I had parents who were willing to talk with me and my sister about those things and say like, yeah, those, ki- those kids should not have said that. Like, that's not okay. But um, yeah, I think it's a lot for a kid to have to, you know, obviously navigate through all of that. And I know I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not alone in that experience. Right.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think it's 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 telling how formational our ethnic identities are at such a young age and what an mm-hmm. impact moments like what one kid said is it you still remember it right and it I still so impacts do. the way we think about our identity yeah. who we are and also, why it's so important for us to have these conversations with kids, right? I, mm-hmm. I feel like adults are so busy talking to each other about the race dialogue happening, and we mm-hmm. forget that children need to be part of these conversations, too, because it impacts them so much. As our listeners know, today we're talking about the Enneagram Daily Reflection Series in this podcast, and you wrote 40 Days on Being a Five. And so can you tell us how you first encountered the Enneagram and also what kind of impact it's had in your life?
5: Yes. So I feel like I encountered the Enneagram in the most like Typical millennial. (laughs) Like, on Instagram, like I, I it it was on Instagram. I, I saw different, but what intrigued me was that I was starting to see different people that I knew from different backgrounds who lived all across the world talking about it. And I was like, wow, this is interesting to me. I was like, I at least want to just know what this is. And I don't remember what the first podcast was I listened to, but someone had posted about a podcast and they were talking about kind of, it was like a general overview of the Enneagram and they were going through each number and I just became very fascinated by it because even though I couldn't quite see myself in it right away, I was very intrigued by the fact that, wow, there's different ways of seeing the world. And then I think it was what I heard Susan Stabil say on her podcast. She's like, the way you find your number is probably the one that makes you want to close the book. So I went and bought a few books and started reading, and it was the five that I was like, "This is the one I'm struggling with." I was like, "I don't, I don't like this person. I don't know if, I don't know if I want to be this person." I was like, "It kind of sounds like me," and and I'm so grateful that I I was able to kind of put it together why I struggled with it, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that. I saw in fiveness a lot of myself that I felt like I had to suppress. And especially as a as a black woman, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes out there as to what a black woman should look like in the world. And a lot of I remember being in college, people kind of expecting me to like they'll meet they'll they'll like use like African American vernacular to speak to me and like try to try to speak like in a sassy way or like expect me to. To create or sing in a certain way. And I always struggle with that. And at the same time, I was just like, well, maybe I have to keep changing myself to kind of adapt and and be in the world as I am. And it was reading about the five that I was able to see. I'm like, wow, I can also, I can, I'm starting to see why I have felt a little alone and why I've felt a little on the outside. And I'm also seeing that. There's nothing wrong with the way that I am and, and, and the way that I, the things I'm motivated by and curious by it's like, maybe everyone won't be able to accept it or understand it, but that doesn't mean that there's no place for me in the world. And I think that that's, that was, that's what encouraged me to go deeper. You're hitting
3: on a topic that has come up a lot in all of these conversations we're having about the Enneagram Daily Reflection series. And this is the word intersection. Mm -hmm. And you've just hit on that intersection between yourself as an Enneagram 5 and yourself as a black woman. And I'd love to just go there even a little deeper. If we can, I'd love to just get a sense of... Maybe how you think your experience as an Enneagram 5 might be distinct and unique because you come um, from that perspective of a Black woman. So how might your Enneagram 5-ness be different from the Enneagram 5-ness of someone in the dominant culture, maybe
5: a white man or a white woman? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because I think it's, I think a lot of it has to do with representation. You know, it's like when you... You know, five, those, so there are some like stereotypes of fives that I don't think are wrong. You know, they're like, oh, you know, maybe they love being in their books. Like they've got bookshelves everywhere. They're always writing. They're kind of more analytical, intellectual. I don't feel like those are, for me personally, I'm like, I don't think those are that harmful or bad stereotypes. But when you think about those, those kind of avatars, they're almost always white guys. (laughs) And that is just, Oh, not true. I mean, I, I have so many friends who look so different than that, that are also interested in like studying and kind of having a more, you know, intellectual approach to life and and just like the way they kind of present in the world. And I've had people say this to me and I, and I know they mean it as a compliment, but I'm like, I think we need to unpack this a little bit. I've had a lot of people say to me, Oh, Morgan, you're the next Oprah. And I'm like, I, I, I know what you're saying there, but would you say to a white guy who's doing what I'm doing that he's the next Steve Jobs? Like, he's got to be like the next, like, whatever the biggest name that you know you can think of. It's like, or, you know, like, w- w- why can't I be like the next Tolkien or something? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just so interesting. I'm like, there, there's no point of reference is what I'm getting at. It's like, you don't actually have that many references of, they're out there, they're out there. There are plenty of Black women who have written poetry and may are. And if anyone needs a list, I got you.
3: <laughs> I can give you a list. I want to ask you this. As I was reading through your book and some of the things you mentioned, you talked about how for Enneagram 5s, fear and uncertainty are things that Enneagram 5s don't really like. And I was thinking about these past two years of living in this pandemic and, of course, all the racial unrest, Mm -hmm. which makes me... I think it was hard for us all, but in particular because of those things we just talked about—fear and uncertainty—for fives, it must have been an even more incredibly challenging time. So, can you just talk a little bit about that? About how you, as a five, coped with this recent stretch of both pandemic
5: and all the race-related incidents Mm. we were seeing? Yes, yes. Well, I was I was very blessed to hear something very encouraging, and I cannot think of his name. But it was an episode on on the on the On Being podcast, and he was talking about um, black activists and and theologians and their roles in kind of moments like this. And I can't. I want to say he he was talking about Howard Thurman, black theologian, and he was saying that Howard Thurman was so often not all, he may not have been on the front lines but he was the minister that a lot of the activists and more forward faces would come to and he was saying that we need people like that it's like we don't all have to be on the front lines like we need people that places a refuge for the people on the front lines to go to and that just really stuck with me because as someone who cares about justice and, and who cares about seeing change and transformation happen, you know, in, in our world, in our country, it, it can be hard at times because I'm just like, I just don't have the energy. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I want to so badly. I have to take naps after phone calls, guys. like I. <laughs> <laughs> like call all the senators like I can call one okay um okay okay <laughs> but I that's so kind of a more extreme version but it really does it, it's taxing for me it's it's taxing to how and and I even conversations I enjoy like this one it still takes a lot of energy so that's something that I wrestle with because again a lot of the red representation around activism a lot of it is geared toward extroverted people and and it and it's and I was like that's just one way it's like you need people at home who are donating who are researching who are providing places of refuge for the people who have been out there and and I I know that just read and heard different accounts of people who have like been a part of, you know, historical marches and things like what happened in Selma and there's so Selma, Alabama. And there's so many times where people have like opened up their homes for people who had just been tear tear gassed. And they just said, come in here and we'll get you some water. We'll provide a safe place for you to sleep or to stay or whatever you need. While I may not be able to physically open up my home, it's like, how can I open up my social media? How can I open up my my DMs, my emails, and I, and I spend a lot of time responding to emails and, and um, there was an organization last year that, that does, uh, they do a lot for um, like um, youth who don't have access to like mental health resources. And I just really believed in what they were doing. And I was like, y'all are just getting started. I was really inspired. And here's some graphics that I made. Like I got the col- the color palettes of their logo and I just like made some stuff. And I sent it to them. I was like, you don't have to tag me. Don't mention me. And like, I, I was like, just, just use it because I believe in what you're doing. So... I I try to stay open to looking for ways like that because sometimes it, it can get very discouraging. You can feel like you're not doing enough if, if you don't have the the vibrato or the ability to kind of go out there and, and you know kind of do what people might expect or what you might expect of yourself. So that's I've been spending a, a lot of time thinking about that. And, and also too, I have friends who are activists and I see them sharing online actually, actually did this today. When I see people coming for them in the comments. Oh, I respond. I've got time. <laughs> I I'm like, Hey, I, I'm here to support you. I love facts. I love to fact check. Like, I, <laughs> I got you. I'm in your corner. Let me know. Let me know if I need to uh, get some receipts. And I, I literally did that for someone today. I saw a comment that was very judgmental and potentially very triggering for people reading it. And I responded, I was like, here's what that's not okay. And I provided receipts as well.
3: What you're talking about even reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you about as well, which is, there are so many ways that the church is divided right now, right? And we can see evidence of that you just described a scenario where you're seeing even on social where people can't agree and get along, and even just among Christians. So, we'd love to yeah. just hear any thoughts you have on how the Enneagram can help the church to become a more unified body of Christ, which it feels like we are still very, very far from at this point.
5: You know, the, the few times that I've been able to have conversations about the Enneagram in in real life and and not on the internet, it has just been, it's been like unlike any other conversation I've ever been in because it's like you're able to get behind the past the surface level really quickly and start talking about motivations and fears or oh here's why I might do that oh here's why you know my spouse or my partner might say that oh that's oh that's interesting and also even in the church those aren't always easy conversations to have with with people so I feel like you know, and again, you know, I'm a five, so I can't organize this myself, but if someone wants to organize, (laughs) you know, a series of events where people can like discuss, like, hey, let's talk about the, the really tense stuff that we keep disagreeing on, you know, as a church, but let's talk about through the lens of the Enneagram. Like, let's talk about why, oh, I, I can see how maybe this leader who may have been kind of that type may have really pushed this idea. And maybe people got confused. I know that may sound a little bit vague, but I I just think there's so many different ways that can go. So I don't know what that answer is, but I guess I'm just hoping for more open, honest conversations where we can all accept our, our differences and how that's, that's what makes the body <laughs> the different parts. So yeah.
0: I love what you said where it, we can go deep so fast with the Enneagram because you yeah. 're really getting behind the why of everyone 's motivations, and mm-hmm. I feel like so much of the church conversation we 're talking so much without actually knowing the why behind what people feel uh, and think, and our assumptions are just right there. You yeah. believe this because probably that, but we don 't actually really know you know, and so yeah
5: i yeah, I had a moment the other day where i and it was a very five moment where someone shared something. And I was like, oh, that's actually not correct. Um, (laughs) I responded and I was like, hey, that's, that's just, that's not a fact. Uh, Here's, here's the facts. And I, and I linked, I always, always have links ready to go. And it it was, it was someone who I know we don't agree on everything, but at at the core of the conversation, it was what you just said. It was about the why, like what even prompted them to share that was from something they were struggling with. They had been, had their heart broken. They had had this terrible experience. And I was like, oh, now I even see why you would share something like that. Cause I can see why, why that, why that even that false link that I can see why that appealed to you because of the pain that you've experienced. So, yeah, it, the Enneagram really does help you get to that why. Totally agree.
0: Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, Morgan's going to do a reading for us, and then we're going to talk with her about her book writing process. And so stay tuned, and thanks for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast.
5: The world keeps changing at a dizzying pace. How can you stay current and discover biblical truths to meet today's challenges? Introducing Seminary Now. A new, online, on-demand streaming service where you can learn from gifted teachers such as Brenda Salter
1: McNeil.
2: The world as God intended is a multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic, and multinational place. James Chung. What is the gospel?
0: Is it just about where you go when you die?
1: When we look at the injustice
4: in the world, we're going to address the perennial issue of slavery. And we're going to talk about the ways in which the Bible was misused to justify the oppression of black and brown people.
1: And there are so many more great teachers to learn from. Get a 20% discount off your subscription by using the code EVN2020 at seminarynow.com. That's EVN2020 at seminarynow.com. The world keeps changing. Don't stop learning.
3: Welcome back to the Every Voice Now podcast. I'm Helen Lee. And now it's time for our Behind the Word segment where we will hear a reading from today's guest. And then we'll find out the backstory of what it was like to write those portions. So Morgan, what will you be reading for us today? And tell us a little bit about why you picked this particular passage.
5: Yes. So I will be reading from, of course, 40 days on being a five, day three, which is called Turn and Follow the Sun. And it's my favorite one in the whole book, uh, just because I feel like it really captures um, what is honestly a huge spiritual practice for me, and that is turning to nature. And this is just one of my, about one of my favorite symbols in nature It's something I think about often because so I was like, this is something really I'm passionate about and maybe in some way it'll connect with someone else. So yeah. Turn and follow the sun. In order to grow, the sunflower knows it must turn its face to the sun. As Merrick Kennedy reported on npr.org, The sunflower has an internal clock that helps it find daylight in the same way we humans naturally navigate our way through sleep-wake cycles. One of the fascinating things about the sunflower is that it learns to track the sun from east to west before it has fully bloomed, while it is still mostly green. Deep in the night, it turns its face back east where it gets ready to start the cycle again. As a five, I feel like I'm never quite ready. Even while writing this reflection, I wonder if I have done my research properly or if I am qualified to share my thoughts. I often feel that in order to face the light of the day in a fully present way, I have to study and prepare a little more. I tell myself lies such as, if I could understand the dynamics of my community a little bit more, Maybe I will finally be able to relax and feel more present at social gatherings. If I listen to this series of podcasts on families and parenting, then I will be equipped to be a better wife and mother. If I spend the next few days withdrawn from social situations, then I'll have enough energy for the big event at the end of the week. If I study the effects of this particular health challenge, then I'll be able to make sense of what I'm experiencing. I forget that like the sunflower, I was meant to be awake and fully alive in broad daylight even before I'm ready. I forget that even though my mind tells me I need to withdraw and hang back until I feel a little more equipped, God has already equipped me with a body to follow the sun. I don't have to wait until I'm older and wiser. I don't have to wait until I have made my way through every book on my shelf. I don't have to familiarize myself with the social dynamics of a group before I can be present in that community and join in on the laughter. I am free to go out and be in the sun. I am free to be a part of the lightheartedness and experience the presence of light-woven love, even if I don't understand it. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eye to the sun. Ecclesiastes 11.7 May we as fives find pleasure in following the sun even before we feel ready. May those pockets of our mind that tell us we're not yet ready fail to keep us from being present to the grace that is sufficient for us. Take heart, breathe deep. God has already ready your soul to turn to the sun. You are more prepared than you think.
3: Thank you, Morgan. And what I love about these devotionals is that even though I'm not a five per se, there's a lot there I can resonate with as a nine, both the, the attention to the, to, to nature. And also I think about other fives I know and how much it makes me more cognizant of how they're thinking about these wow. kinds of things. So there's so much that I appreciate, even though I'm not. A yeah. five. And then
5: this whole <laughs> this whole series is like that. As I, I heard different authors reading. I think that's the beauty of it. Because I, I feel like what ends up happening is it's just this is us like as a five or as a nine or as a seven. Like when you when you go deeper, you go you eventually you get to something that's actually universal and that everyone else can connect with. And it's just you presenting it through your own unique lens, (laughs) your own unique story. So, and that was kind of my, my hope in even writing that and and the rest of the uh, devotionals is that I'm just going to go deep into my own experience as deep as I can, but maybe even just that act of vulnerability can, can encourage someone who may not even be a five and, and, in their own life. So. Well, you mentioned this was your favorite.
3: Was it your favorite to write or was it your favorite to to just go through the process of creating was it hard was it Mm -hmm. easy tell us a little bit more about writing this passage
5: yes I think it was just my it was my favorite to write and it was my my favorite just to think about because I love studying things and and I mean I've as sure as that devotional is i probably read no less than 25 articles on sunflowers, <laughs> on sunflowers. <laughs> internal sunflowers internal clock and i spent and i'm pretty sure like the editing process i think there was actually more and they helped me narrow it down because i was like i can't leave out any of the details it's all so cool everyone <laughs> yeah. must know like these flowers are just amazing
3: well, I can see why this one would have been fun because of that research element and getting to study mm-hmm. about the sunflower. Yeah. But, this, I
5: didn't have, but I didn't have to study my story. Like, that's the well, thing. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> I get to study something else. <laughs> that's
3: the interesting thing about these devotionals is, is that they are so personal. And I know from, from reading um, your book that you mentioned how Enneagram Fives are often more reserved and more private. And yet this devotional really... Forces the writer to bring out all kinds of deep things and vulnerabilities that they have. So, talk a little bit about that side of writing. Some of the other devotionals in the book that might not have been as fun to write, but um, but are present in this project as well. How was it trying to write some of those more personal kinds of entries?
5: Yes, it was. It took a lot to kind of get out of childhood and write about things that I had experienced as an adult, because, you know, as a five, it takes us a while to figure out what we feel. And I feel like I'm just now figuring out how I feel about things that happened in my childhood. So it was hard to go like three years back and, I'm like I don't know what I felt. Um, I it took it took a long time. Like I think one of the longest ones, I forget what it's called, but I was talking about when I was in Jerusalem, and I was standing at the Damascus Gate. I think that one took the longest to write because it was one of the most recent. And I was just like, I know this was a significant moment in my life. I, I felt that it 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 had some meaning. There's something there. But it was very hard to like get out of the intellectual and to start talking about like the longing and everything that I was experiencing with that. But just like actually trying to paint that picture on the page, it's hard because I was like, this just happened a few minutes ago. I I don't, I'm still trying to figure out how I feel. So yeah, that took some, that took some work. The, the childhood stories were the easiest because I've just been able to spend the most time with them. and. um so, yeah, that that definitely was something new that I that I had to dig into. Well, I, I appreciate hearing all these details
3: behind the scenes, because for readers just who don't know, like how much has gotten into each of these devotionals. I mean, they seem like short devotionals, but we're hearing yeah. more about how much work, how much much research, how much introspection. Oh, yeah. So it helps us oh, all to
0: sure.
3: <laughs> appreciate them even more.
0: All right, Morgan. Well, would you let us know what is ahead for you in regards to your own writing or your art or your Enneagram work, any of the above? Let us know. What's next?
5: Yeah, so I have been on a journey of trying to find more um, more ways just to share what I create and share what I um, make, uh, kind of like in... I don't know how to describe it, but like in more calming environments. So prior to the pandemic, I had all these plans that have just been, you know, postponed. So we'll get to that in-person stuff later, but for now um, I've been investing a lot into my app. I have an app called Storyteller and we have a lot of, we have a lot of updates rolling out in the fall, um, uh, closer to Christmas, actually, where um, like we already have like journal prompts and daily affirmations and things. In the app, and but now it's just I'm making it. There's going to be a feature where you can actually journal within the app. So we're going to have like a journal prompt every day from me. After there's like a, a daily reading and a journal prompt, and you'll be able to journal within the app. You'll be able to highlight within the app. There'll be features to save things, and I just want to keep adding different different aspects of this app. But yeah, I I feel like similarly to a book, I I, I hope that the app can be like okay, this is where I just kind of escape all the, you know, rush of everything else. And I just go here for a few minutes just to take a moment and breathe, to reflect on this image, to just focus on this one thing for now. So, so yeah, I feel like that's me trying to recreate what I love about books in a digital space. So yeah, the app's called Storyteller. It's on Android and Apple.
0: I love that. I'm distracted now because I'm like (laughs) looking for it on my phone. That's awesome. We'll have that for sure linked in the show notes as well. But yeah, thank you, Morgan, so much for being part of this Enneagram Supersize episode. It's just been a joy to talk with you. And we're so glad you're part of the Enneagram Daily Reflection series.
5: I'm so glad to be a part of it too. This has been such a joy to be a part of it really it really has. So thank you all. Thank you for creating the space. You know, it's, I'm honored to share but what you all are doing, even with this episode and creating this a welcoming space to talk about these things is so important. So thank you so much.
3: Thank you, Morgan. And we'll make sure we link to all of your social media accounts and have your website in our show notes. And to our listeners, if you've been enjoying all these conversations we've had today with our Enneagram Daily Reflections authors, make sure to go to everyvoicenow.com. You'll find Morgan's book there along with the other authors you've heard from today. And if you use the code EVN40, you'll get 40% off and free US shipping. So take advantage of that great deal on this wonderful series of Enneagram devotionals.
1: Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast, brought to you by IVP. Our producer is Helen Lee, and our sound engineer is Jonathan Clausen. If you are enjoying our show, please share about it with your friends. We'd be grateful for your reviews and recommendations on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: And we'd love to hear from you directly anytime. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Every Voice Now. Or you can email us with your comments, questions, or suggestions at evnivpress.com. At and join us next time for another inspiring episode of Every Voice Now.